Welcome to Startup Stories, where we go behind the scenes of some of the most interesting and innovative tech startups in the world. Each episode will bring you in-depth interviews with entrepreneurs and business leaders, sharing their personal stories on success, failure, and everything in between. So whether you're an entrepreneur yourself or someone that's just generally interested in the world of startups, then Startup Stories is the perfect place for you to gain insight and inspiration into some of the most exciting players in the game. So sit back, relax, and join us on a journey of Startup Stories. Hi, Dan. Hi. Great to have you on the Startup Stories podcast. Thanks, Jordan. Nice to be here. Glad to hear it. So you sit here today as the founder of an award-winning multi-million dollar company called Nexiot with over 100 employees. But what do I need to know about you to understand the life you've had Take me back to your earliest context from your childhood. Okay, so I grew up in Lancashire in a small working class town just north of Manchester. And um, it was relatively tough place to grow up. You know, there was kind of a, a sense of poverty from the de-industrialization of the North. You know, sort of to put it plainly, Margaret Thatcher back then decided to focus on financial services and it all became very London-centric. And, um, you know, I was growing up in a post-industrial northern cotton town where there was a scarcity of jobs. I realized that, you know, there was probably my future lay somewhere else. But I actually grew up in a, a quite an artistic family. My dad was a minister of a church, but before that he was an artist. So arts and creativity focused very heavily in my childhood. So I always had this kind of belief that I could do anything, make anything, try anything and, you know, sort of a general bravery to learn things. When I was a kid, I was obsessed with the Encyclopedia Britannica. I used to read it from front to back. I was more into fact <laughs> books than reading fiction. So I sort of built up quite a broad general knowledge. And um, I always understood myself as a generalist, really. And before it was almost a term or popularized, you know, I realized that um, if you have an interdisciplinary approach and lots of different influences and lots of context around you in your life, it's a good place to be to leverage ideas off each other's and cross-pollinate ideas and uh, create new things. So, uh, you know, I used to make my own outdoor clothes and things like this on the sewing machine. And uh, I was into, uh, you know, sort of uh, quite an outdoorsy kind of lifestyle, always thinking of new ideas and how I can add value, you know, with my own life to the wider world. Thanks for the introduction. So you talked about your father being uh, quite artistic before his, well, his job at the time. Was he the one out of the two parents that had the impact on you? I think, to be honest, um, it was equally, but also it was outside of the family home. So things that I read and people that I met, uh, you know, a few teachers and things like this that influenced me. I think growing up in kind of a quite a dynamic family environment with quite a lot of creativity around. So, you know, I remember my dad plonked a lump of clay in front of me, you know, when I was very young and said, you know, make something. So, you know, this kind of idea of having the capabilities to try new things and to make things with your hands and, you know, with your with your ideas was basically a part of my childhood, you know, from both parents, really, I would say. Okay. And then when you, what was your school life like? Did you leave 
and go straight out into the working world or did you go to university? Tell me about that. Yeah, so I, I you know, school was kind of a mixed bag, really. I, I mean, I enjoyed school. I was quite good at learning. I was always a little bit cheeky and a bit precocious. And, um, you know, I tended to not be too much into sticking to the rules, but I knew how to get by, how to manage. And in a way, that rebel culture and that sort of determination to stay individualistic stood me in good stead. I did quite well at school. I went on to a grant-maintained grammar school in Lancashire, which was a big change for me because it was um, more aspirational, higher quality of education, you know, more inspiring, really. And then I went away to university. I just chose a subject that I thought I would be good at, and it was the Physical Geography and Environmental Science, BSc, not really technology-related, but again, it gives you a systems approach to looking at the world, and you understand the interconnected nature of everything, you know, that systems, you know, sort of a, a layered systems mesh, a mesh of systems, really laid on top of each other where weather systems you know um groundwater systems you know all these sorts of things my dissertation was on uh, waterfalls i studied the loss of energy across waterfall plunge pools i was always fascinated by rivers and glaciers and things like this in some cases they seem to have a mind of their own you know in a way a river knows how much energy it needs to lose before it gets to the sea which is quite crazy when you think about it how does it know what's going on downstream in order to get rid of that energy at the top end of the of the system so um pretty fascinating stuff also pretty brutal you know i'm not a maths genius but i was sort of able to able to adapt uh, my skills to to cope with the maths but i'm always more about the ideas and putting things together and building things that make sense and finding a way to solve problems and to bring the right teams together and that's sort of uh, you know the the basis of being a founder in the technology space so before you became a co-founder of Nexiot, how did you get into the career of 15 years being a recruiter? Is it 15 years? Yeah, about that. Yeah. So I actually moved to the US uh, directly after my last exam. I was in Baltimore the second day after my exam, my last exam at university. And I started doing door-to-door sales in Baltimore. If you, I don't know if you've ever seen the film The Wire, the TV show The Wire. It's a pretty rough place. Uh, or it can be, and uh, I was knocking on doors selling aerial photographs to to people's houses. Very risky enterprise, probably something not that I would recommend to my children, but uh, at the same time, it, it was a really amazing experience, gave me a lot of confidence. I came back from this experience, realized that I can kind of, you know, set my hand to more or less anything, any challenge. And um, I became a, a recruiter, headhunter. I was uh, attracted by the IT recruitment market. It was booming at the time. So it was around 98, 99. You know, it's back in the day where people were still cycling around, couriering CVs around the city and things like this. But I realized that, you know, if I'm going to have to work till nine till five, I might as well be able to control my own income. And that was the, you know, sort of the, the main job to be able to do that. That's extremely high pressured performance related. It's that there's a phone, there's a desk, there's a computer, make money. If you don't, you're fired. And, um, you know, that sort of environment is also good preparation for being a founder. 
Absolutely. Would you say your job in Baltimore and Dalton or Sal was, was the ultimate preparation for the real world? I'd say it's probably one of the toughest experiences of my life. But then I would say I didn't know what it was to be a co-founder of a technology company at that point. So, uh, you know, it's always, uh, you know, it's like if you're learning to snowboard, you don't jump off, uh, you know, a 20 meter jump on the first day. You know, no. you get into it, you learn your limits, you learn your, you know, the areas that you need to add strength and capabilities. And this comes over time. So, uh, you know, you build up a sort of a, a broad range of capabilities and experiences. So that was definitely formative and very important. But I wouldn't say it was any more important than, you know, making 100 outgoing phone calls a day as a recruiter in a very competitive market. 100% agree. I asked that question because I listened to a podcast just yesterday, actually, a guy called Alex Homonzi, and he's a big founder of, of his own company. And he said to anyone that's looking to start our own business or they're, they're in the early days of, you know, just left school to get into door to door sales, it's the ultimate way to get a Ferris wheel of, of quick feedback. Because you're only going to learn when every door you knock on the rejection, right? How do I handle that better? You straight onto the next door is the ultimate building of confidence i was telling a friend about my first experience in what they call power closing and you know this kind of level of belief that's required to make that happen and uh, door-to-door sales is quite a sort of aggressive really in some senses you know you sort of push your way into the route into the front room and start spreading your bag and your stuff around and you know then you basically choice close them on how they'd like to pay you know that's the ideal scenario for a door-to-door salesperson uh, to make a deal but you know the sort of you have all these you know preconceptions about how you're going to be perceived and the risk of it going wrong or all these sorts of things or you know worrying about your pitch and so on but actually you know the first time I, I think I closed five or six deals in a row knocking on houses that were essentially the same as all the other houses that I hadn't sold to. So I realized that it's internal. It's something that you, you're feeling and doing yourself that makes the difference. It's not external. And we're living in a time where there's a lot of um, identity politics and victim culture. And, you know, I'd say, you know, going back to your, you know, sort of uh, the, the context that you just mentioned of having the ultimate experience through door to door, I'd say it's pretty close because, you know, you can't be a victim because it's it's written on your face. You know, you just bring those bad vibes to the next sale and you just waste that opportunity, you know. So I suppose, um, you know, the toughness and the determination and the resilience to look inside yourself is is an important skill. But you can learn that anywhere, to be honest. You could also learn that, you know, in, in many different contexts, I think. Absolutely. Okay. So tell me about the path that led you to become the co-founder of Nexiot. Yeah, so um, thanks for pronouncing it right as well. I appreciate that. You know, it's a, <laughs> it's an interesting one. Um, you know, when you're thinking of a name for a company, I think I um, I explored maybe 1,300 names in one evening and searched everyone to see if it was available as a URL. But, um, you know, Nexiot is Next IoT, or it's also the X is the unknown quantity, the unknown number. It's also X marks the spot. It's where the treasure's hidden. It's the X factor as well. So there's all these kinds of connotations but you know just to sort of uh, tell the story briefly and you know it's a fairly long story but I don't want it to be a monologue (laughs) I basically I always wanted to add more value with my life than you can do as a recruiter and this it's not that it's not valuable being a recruiter although it's pretty intensive sales but uh, as a recruiter you only have your own phone calls your own 
words. It's not scalable. You find a candidate, you find a job, you sell the candidate to the job and the job to the candidate, and then you move on to the next one. So in terms of really moving the needle and really making a significant impact, I was always thinking of like enterprise-grade applications. And I was also thinking about environmental science and about, you know, the the issue of climate change and whatever your opinion on that is, you know, it's clear that we're burning or using our resources. We need to be more efficient in the way that we live our lives as a species. We need to protect freedom. We need to protect value. We need to understand what our resources really are. And we need to be honest with ourselves about what true cost and about, you know, what the, you know, the risks of, uh, of our actions are. And, you know, I was thinking about this and I was thinking always about what's the next big thing in technology. And, you know, if we think about the rise of the Internet, you know, originally the Internet arrived and everyone said, wow, you know, we first few nerds sent a few hello worlds to their friends, you know, a, pic <laughs> a picture of cats made out of exclamation marks, you know, and, and actually, you know, then it evolved into email and then into enterprise applications and then into social media. But in the end, it's always been connecting people to people. And for me, you know, there was a whole aspect of the physical world that we interact with as humans that needed also to be connected. And uh, it was known previously as machine-to-machine -machine communication. And then uh, later, the, this word in around 2005, 2006, people started talking about IoT, Internet of Things, 50 billion devices connected to the Internet. And I used to th think to myself, you know, where are the applications? What's the point of this? You know, where where is this going to lead us? Where's the true value for, for you know, for as many people as possible? And, um, you know, one of those applications that everybody talks about at the time was the connected coffee machine. And for me, the connected coffee machine, it's kind of cool, but it's more bragging rights down the pub. It's like people who turn their central heating on, you know, uh, from, from the pub. As the, I like to have a nice warm home. You know, it's like, well, does it really transform your life? No, it's more of a brag. But the connected coffee machine, never running out of coffee. Okay, it's kind of cool. But again, it's, it's, a, it's a B2C application. It's a consumer application. And for me, it wasn't going to move the needle. So I was thinking broadly about, you know, how connectivity and analytics and how big data is going to be the key uh, source of value in the future. Around the time, I met a friend who was a neighbor of mine. He was working in a small lab, a small research lab, physical computing. It was ultra low power embedded hardware, energy harvesting, complex systems, big data but all quite sort of a hacking environment. It was bolted on to a department which was computer-aided design and architecture at the ETH in Zurich, which is one of the top technical universities in the world. And um, basically, I, I joined that lab and we did two years of searching for the minimal viable products. I used the books, mainly the books Lean B2B, which is taking the minimal viable products approach to B2B markets and talking and emphasizing the need for investors want scalability and recurring revenues. That was the kind of the, the, the mantra that I impregnated into my head for the search. And then, you know, it's a matter of in the evening, come up with a few ideas and then test them the next day. So... You know, back to the recruitment days, 100 phone calls a day, asking every question, being extremely naive, but being open-minded to absorbing the client's feedback and understanding, you know, the challenges that they might have. And uh, when you look at the corporate world, you know, there's lots of things that might need connecting. But for me, I wanted to really go for big numbers and make it really scalable and something that's really, really valuable and, you know, somewhere that everybody needs the data. 
And uh, after quite some adventures and travels, you know, sort of we settled or we decided to focus on the supply chain. So you you had this idea to set this business out and you were, in terms of this, working on this idea to turn it into reality, how many, was it two years you spent working on that? I'd say uh, probably about four years discussing it as a concept and exploring, you know, different possible products and, and use cases. Then two years really intensely working, you know, focusing on the market and defining the needs of the market. And then it was a matter of setting up the company. And then we were actually very quickly started to become successful because we'd done all of our homework and we'd done so much thinking about, you know, what would make sense for, you know, for the market. The market in the supply chain is a very interesting question because everybody needs the data. Everybody needs a piece of that data. And the asset owner is the obvious place to start. But there's plenty of others who need a part of that data in order to do a better job. And maybe we can get into that a little bit more detail later. Yeah, so your four years of preparation, and as you say, two years of working on it and turn it into a, a, a success. But that's a long time. How were you supporting yourself during that phase financially? So the first four years, I was still recruiting and still had my regular job. Then I had some savings for the two years and just took bit, bit the bullet and worked from home. And, uh, you know, we were camped out in a small corner of the ETH and nobody really asked any questions. And we could have a phone and an internet connection and, you know, go somewhere out of the home uh, into a, a workplace or an office. Uh, helps definitely but uh, really it was self-funded and it was maximum risk and quite a crazy crazy idea really i love that though i mean there's no reward without risk though right yeah i think risk is an interesting question because a lot of people through the journey have come up to me and said you know kind of this humble bragging which is you know i'd love uh, i would love to do what you do but i've got a young family and to be honest it's too much risk and I say, well, you know, what What do you think, you know, who do you work for? Big corporates and generally, yes, you know, and actually you still have the risk because anything can happen. It's just you don't have the visibility on it. It's just a safety net or a safety blanket, really, that people tell themselves that they're in a secure role and everything's fine. But actually, you know, the real risk for me is not living full, a fulfilled life or not experimenting with, you know, who you can actually be and getting stuck in a in a rut and actually diminishes you and reduces your capacity as a human to embrace the world and embrace new ideas and challenges i 100 percent agree i always say to people that who say the same thing that you just said i always say okay so run me through your week then and uh, what are you doing after work because you know i understand that you can like you did with your recruiter job you still had it on the side during the research phase it's like, after work, what are you doing? Oh, okay, we watch a movie or we watch a box set. So that's two, three, you know, possibly three hours of a night eating dinner whilst watching a box set where you could be working on something that you're passionate about or something that you want to get into. And eventually, when you first get, you know, a, a, a tiny bit of success and stuff like that, as soon as that business that you're working on the side starts to pay more than what you're currently earning and you can slowly walk away. Yeah, I even think of it differently to that because I think of it not so much about the money, but it's about the value that you create. And if you constantly create value with your life and with the with the resources, which is mainly time, you know, I'm fascinated by this question too. You know, why do people go to work? What do they do when they're not at work? And most of the time they want to do nothing. 
And I find it strange how, you know, people are so willing to put so much energy and effort into someone else's project and put it up into themselves. And, you know, I've probably been, I'm an artist as well. I, you know, I do fabric designs, I make jewelry, I do all kinds of things. And generally I find, find that the energy, if you keep the energy rolling, you roll from one thing into the other. You don't have that hard stop. You don't have that moment where you actually have to get the momentum again because you're actually transforming yourself from one thing into another and it's much more fluid. So, you know, I fully agree. I've probably been working 16 hour days on various projects for the last 25 years. So, you know, it's normal for me. So when you turn from recruiter to founder of Nexion, it's really kicking on being successful. What has life like been for you as a, as a founder of a company? So uh, it's not uh, it's not the sort of the romantic you know view that most people have. I think it's pretty gritty and it's pretty relentless and tough. Um, maybe we just go back a little bit as to the point where I discovered that this supply chain space was the thing. And you know, if you think about it, you know, everything that you see around us in the room here today, it somehow comes out the ground. We take these raw materials, these commodities, you know, these minerals and and wood and and stone and metal and all these things that sort of come out the ground out of the earth and we process those things and we create some value out of them we create something that's either a, a you know a chemical or a or a, a finished product or a, or a plastic or foam or something that's used in our homes or in our lives and we send it across the planet and it gets lost and broken and damaged and stolen on the way and for me this wasn't acceptable so i was extremely purpose led or, or values driven i wanted to make a you know an impact in terms of the way that we think about value and the way that we retain value for humanity and and the way that we you know make the most out of our resources and uh, you know being values led is a great advantage because you know your fear is gone uh, you're not afraid of anything because you have a you know a deep rooted purpose you have the moral high ground in uh, negotiations and discussions because you're trying to do something good and also it's easy to motivate yourself because you know why you're going to work you know why you're going to stay up that extra two hours to prepare that presentation or to you know to think about the brand name or whatever it is the task of the day also you know you need to be self-motivated to do something like this you can't you know be expecting you know to be pressured or pushed by anyone else you have to find that inside yourself so you know in those early days when you sort of decide to do something like this and you set off on that journey you know it feels exciting you feel a little bit of a renegade you feel like you're going off the normal career path but also it's intimidating because you've got to you know pay your bills you've got to you know you've got responsibilities i have children uh, have children and uh, you know they they uh, they need to be looked after so on one side it's exciting but on another side it's like a huge unknown and the unknown is incredible because it can turn out to be brilliant and it can, out to, can turn out to be terrible depending on what you're prepared to make of it and how you're prepared to view it when we first started the company you know we did a lot of traveling i was doing 100 flights a year I would say, to wow. meet all the clients and to be first through the door and to explore the use cases and to speak at all of the events that I could and to be, you know, leading the charge for digital supply chain. You know, there's obviously challenges with you have to do, do we sell or do we raise money? You know, do we focus on building up the team or do we build up, a, a, you know, the minimal viable product and, and get the traction in the marketplace? Actually, you know, within nine months of founding the company, we'd sold 75,000 assets worth of this device, the third version of this device. This is a um, glow popper gateway. It has energy harvesting. It's zero maintenance. It's um, 
sending its data every every five minutes to the cloud when the asset's moving. It's gathering data on location and impact events and vibrations and all kinds of things. So this is kind of the, the core of our, our business value is that we decided to make hardware, which is extremely tough. Uh, you know, we're living in an age where everything's being focused on asset light investments or um, app-based products, but we still live in a physical world. We still need that hardware element, and then we can sell our services and our data analytics on top of that. So it was quite a unique approach to the market. We realized in the early days that the reasons why the clients hadn't bought until now is that the devices, the batteries kept going. It needed to be self-sufficient, self-sustaining. The clients didn't know what to do with the data. There were no standards in place. You know, there was a lot of complexity. You'd need to take the connectivity part under your, under control as well. So there's lots of different elements that we realized we the clients wouldn't really put this together. But actually, in a, in a way, we made the market because there were devices out there, but we actually said we bundle the hardware with a service and we basically do hardware-enabled software as a service with a hybrid purchasing model, which was a real breakthrough for the industry because it helped the clients to, de to deploy full fleet deployments and to reduce their capex risk. So, you know, there's lots of iterations, but the feeling overall, you know, during that, it's always changing, to be honest, because you can come up against barriers, against huge challenges uh, on the daily basis, and you have to control yourself and overcome them. After a while, you feel kind of bulletproof because you've been through so much and you're still alive. So, you know, you kind of realize that, you know, don't react to today's news because it's already, it's already history. There's actually new reality coming immediately tomorrow. Did you experience any self-doubt during the, the build-up phase? I don't think it was really self-doubt. It was more like everybody laughs at you, more or less. The first investors, some of the first investors, half an hour laughing at me, yeah? Why would you be able to do this? This is such a big project. Why would it not be Bosch or Siemens? Why would it not be Amazon or Google? You know, what? Do you, why do you think you can do this? And it, it really was like this. And then, you know, other investors ignored me and death scrolled their phone during the meeting and things like this. So, you know, other people doubt you, but it wasn't that I was sure that we would be successful, but I was sure that we would have the determination to follow the project through to a, a conclusion. And being okay with it failing is also fine. Yeah, because it's not failing, you're just learning. And if you can't internalize that as a concept, then you know you can't fail at all in life. 100% agree. I always say you haven't failed if you don't give up. Yeah, exactly. And you know, it's really, I mean, if you think about it, it's been 10 years now and you know, you think that the initial version of this was that we make a few devices and we sell a million of them to Maersk or one of the big shipping lines. And it was super naive, you know, actually, there's no way that's going to happen. You know, probably you sign a service level agreement with a big client and they own your IP after 12 months because uh, you can't deliver on the on the high expectations that you've uh, agreed so, you know, there's many moments where, you know, there's, there was politics in the uh, at certain points. There was challenges between, as a founder, you're kind of stuck between the team, the board, the investors, the clients and partners. So, you know, you're always trying to navigate and calibrate around who needs your attention next to make sure that everything stays on track. 
What's been the best moment for you so far with Nexiot? I would say all of it. I really I really don't want to break... You know, I don't like putting things into boxes. You know, there's been some hilarious moments. I got arrested in Dubai because I was carrying <laughs> I was carrying 30 prototypes into the country and uh, they scanned my bag and they thought that I was probably, you know, there for uh, some dodgy reasons. In the end, it turned into a sales opportunity. The guy turned around to me and said, you know, how much for 100,000 of these after, after several hours interrogation? You know, there's been quite a lot of hilarity. There's been a lot of... Moments moments where I felt like an imposter. I once, uh, the early days, I was in a meeting with the World Shipping Council and the Container Owners Association and the, you know, all of the major players in maritime space, the shipping lines and so on. I was in the on the 80th floor of some Shanghai tower in a room full of 50 people on a shiny table. And, uh, you know, I was relatively new to the industry. And uh, somebody turned around and said, we're very happy to have Dan McGregor in the room today, who's going to tell us how we're going to do digital global trade. And I'm like, okay, here we go. So, um, but you start talking because you've got ideas on it. And I glanced up after the first three sentences and realized that everybody was writing notes. So I continued. That's pretty cool though. That is pretty cool. You must be very proud of what you've built so far. I don't like the word pride to proud, to be honest, because there's like an ownership element. There's like a bit of back patting going on with that word. Mm. Uh, I think that it leads to complacency. I'm not proud of me. I'm proud of the team. I'm proud of the people around us who've believed in this, the early investors and the current investors. Everything's happened for a reason at the right moment. You have to almost relinquish yourself to, you know, sort of the universe and just have faith that, that it will work out somehow and not treat it so you don't, don't want to be going up and down you don't want to have an emotional roller coaster you need to be like you know consistent even when the, you know the worst times i suppose the word proud i'm proud that we've reached this point as a, as a team and i'm proud that we can make an impact we had let's talk about impact for a second we had Multiple vessels burn at sea in the last few years, probably mostly because of misdeclared cargo. One of those vessels burned down off the coast of Sri Lanka, and the, it resulted in one of the biggest plastic spills in the history of humanity onto one of the most beautiful coral reefs and beaches in the world. It's not acceptable anymore. We have to get control of our global activities in the way that we use industrial materials and solutions and services. So, you know, when, we, when we've got, you know, 5 million shipping containers equipped, we've got 2 million more rail cars to equip in North America. We've just seen that there was a catastrophe recently in North America where, the, you know, rail, a rail crash and uh, chemicals in a town and things like this. You know, when we start seeing that these events significantly decrease and we can, you know, retain that value from the supply chain, then uh, I'll be very, very happy. So how far do you want to take it with Nexiot? What's the, the goals and ambitions going forward? Yeah, so we, I mean, we've done some very significant deals recently. Um, you know, the first, my first dream was to equip a million shipping containers and we're well on the way to doing that now with our partner, Hapag Lloyd. So there's um, about a million of these devices be in production currently and this is going on to the dry containers of the Hapag Lloyd fleet. It's the first, you know, fleet that's a uh, company that's decided to go full fleet deployment. So full visibility on all, 
all the maritime containers, which I think is a beautiful moment for humans. It makes complete sense. We've done another deal recently with Knorr Bremse, where we're going to take all of the brake data from the rail cars onto our platform. I'd say that our platform, we're building an ecosystem. We go vertical and then horizontal. You have to build a bit of horizontal in order to spread into the horizontal, but you go into the vertical market and then into the horizontal market and keep extending the products out to different verticals. So I'd say the, you know, the sky's the limit. We're one of the main players now in this space, which is doing a hardware-enabled software and, and big data analytics for digital supply chain. There's other players out there who want our data. Really now it's a matter of scaling up the business and uh, extending the value from the software side and from the analytics side. So uh, you know, we're integrating the artificial intelligence and machine learning and, and these sorts of things uh, you know, more and more. So we know the context around events. When you know the context, then you can automate processes. Dan, many would say that you've accomplished so much already and, and, and many would look at that, that's enough. But why do you continue to do what you do and what gets you out of bed in the morning still still to this day? So we're just at the beginning, Jordan, to be honest, you know, like uh, this idea of, you know, of reaching a point where you've done it. Uh, I think that if you're really adding value, then, you know, you always see new opportunities to add value. And especially when it comes to this data topic. Um, what gets me out of bed in the morning? Uh, I love my team. I love my colleagues. We've got 35 different nationalities inside the company. Everybody has joined for a reason. We're very diverse, not because we try to be diverse, but because we just are. You know, we have quite a sort of a neurodivergent crew here. You know, it's always fun. It's always unusual. There's no blame culture. People are not, you know, sort of trying to uh, defend their, their themselves or their teams or departments. It's more, you know, we're happy to make mistakes and learn from them. And we want to keep that culture very strong. So now, uh, you know, my role, I'm taking on the CXO role at the moment. So chief experience officer, as well as the, the, the obviously I'm the co-founder, but we will now uh, scale the business. We try to keep that culture very, very strong. I'd say the culture has been one of the most important parts of doing of building this. You know, if you create create a great personal culture and then the, for the first, you know, small part of the team, and then you keep working on that culture, you build the brand from the culture so it's very authentic and it resonates with people. And then you leverage the brands to raise money, to bring in uh, clients to hire people and to you know build relationships with partners. So now you know it's about building relationships with partners. It's about adding to the team. It's about maintaining the culture and it's about bringing new use cases to the market and to the ecosystem or the let's say the you know the entire supply chain industry through the data that we generate. Many companies out there struggle to create a great culture and, and more importantly, sustain a great culture. How do you create a great culture? Mm, it's really hard. It's one of the most difficult things, I think, because you want to be fast. You want to accelerate at maximum speed you know, into, the, into your chosen market. And that naturally stretches the organization to some, to some extent. It, you know, it puts pressure on people. So you know, you're asking people to work you know, intensely on extremely challenging things that haven't been done before, but at the same time, you know, be extremely compassionate and, you know, extremely values driven. It's about hiring the right people, essentially. It's about setting an example by living your values yourself. You know, nobody, I don't want anyone, you know, ever to experience a version of me that is not positive 
joyful, happy, and uh, and inspired to be here. Um, and obviously, you know, if that if that happens, then probably it's time to think about change. But at the moment, you know, we're probably entering the most exciting phase of growth. And, you know, we've even though I've been 10 years, you know, on the ground here, it's because it's changing all the time. It doesn't feel repetitive. So this mm-hmm. just brings a lot of joy and a lot of excitement because, you know, you've always got new, exciting experiences. And this, you know, it helps you to evolve as a person, too. Do you think your recruitment background helped you in hiring the right people? Oh yeah, hundred percent. I mean, obviously, you build up a very quickly an instinct for what questions to ask, and you can sense when there's a you know an inconsistency in the answers. And and I, I've always believed in whenever there's a, a slight inconsistency, that's where the very interesting stuff is. I don't know if you've heard of Janusian thinking, but the Janus, no. the the god, the the Roman god Janus, is depicted by a figure with heads looking in both directions. The idea is that you are looking backwards and you're looking forwards or you're looking, you know, at different, at the same topic from different, different perspectives. And Janusian thinking is that you're, you're okay with apparent paradoxes and you have to be okay with the paradoxical nature of things because sometimes that's where the that's the part we need to focus on and understand better so if you actually look at the general theory of relativity that was one thing that flagged up that interest to einstein that there's a parent paradox that he wanted to resolve and what would you say is the above all what was the most important lesson that you've learned along the way kill the ego obviously you need some ego you need the positive side of ego you need to be able to be confident enough to stand on stage for example or to you know to go into and to a cold call with an investor or or a meeting with a big client and you know answer questions that you're not feeling very comfortable with and so on but the bad side of ego which kind of you know is defending yourself or protecting yourself from the idea of failure or from being perceived as a as an idiot or something like this you know this is a, a, extremely it prevents you from making progress because you're tr- too busy trying to defend yourself and you're not able to really look at the the reality and ask yourself the tough questions and learn from them it's a fine line and um, but i would say that you know that if you really want to be successful as a co-founder or founder of a, of a new company then you know deal with your own sort of personal insecurities as best you can so that you can be really honest and direct with the subject matter and that you're not trying to defend things that might be wrong because of your own weakness. Dan, thank you for joining me on the Startup Stories podcast. I think it's a wonderful story and uh, it's really inspired me. So I think it'll inspire many as well. You're doing something amazing with Nexio and uh, I look forward to, to following your journey over the coming 12 months. Thank you so much, Jordan. It's been a real pleasure. Great questions. I appreciate the questions. Thank you. No problem at all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Startup Stories. I hope you enjoyed hearing from our guests and learning more about their journey in the startup world. I'll be back soon with another exciting episode featuring a new guest. So make sure to subscribe to Startup Stories so you never miss an episode. Also, don't forget to follow me on social media for updates and additional content. And if you have any suggestions for guests or topics you'd like to hear about, please reach out to me. And as always, I appreciate your support and feedback. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.